join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the NDP leadership race is officially now on, as downtown Toronto MPP Marit Stiles checks in. The Financial Accountability Office outlines just how expensive climate impacts are on Ontario's roads and public transit. Ontario's education support staff kick off a 10-day strike vote. The opposition alleges underspending by the government as they file a surprise surplus in the public accounts. And how popular do you think Doug Ford is? three months after winning a majority government. We'll tell you. It's Tuesday, September 27th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, I have a burning question for you off the top here. Have you ever had your face on a candy bar? It tends to go the other way around with me. I get a candy bar in my face. Ah, okay. Well, that doesn't sound nearly as much fun. Uh, Ontario's premier isn't quite on a popular candy bar just yet, but he did get his face on a granola bar. Does that still count? If you were at the international plowing match in North Grenville uh, that wrapped up last week, Ford wasn't able to show up this year. He uh, had to attend the funeral for a slain Toronto police officer, uh, as did NDP leader uh, Peter Tabbins. Uh, But in his absence, uh, the progressive conservatives were handing out uh, granola bars with the uh, premier's smiling mug on it brandished, you know, building Ontario together. Uh, now, normally the legislature would have adjourned for the plowing match, uh, but it didn't have to this year. What's up? Uh, well, as our listeners probably recall, the legislature was adjourned until after the municipal elections uh, on October 24th. Uh, they they met for that one day to pay tribute to uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II. But uh, Normally, the the legislature would be in session for September and October, and they always take uh, two or three days off to go to the plowing match. It's one of those you know, items on the legislative calendar. We've talked about this a bit before um, in context, in the context of AMO, where uh, the legislature usually not sitting in August, but every year at AMO, people convene and it's a way for MPPs to, you know, get outside of the Queen's Park bubble a bit and get an earful from municipal representatives. And I think the plowing match serves a similar function. It's just one of those things that they do to make sure that the concerns of Queen's Park aren't purely urban. And, you know, you end up getting some of the funniest pictures taken because you get people who, let's face it, are not farmers who end up on top of a combine or something like that. And they try to show that they know what they're doing. And, uh, you know, I I don't personally remember this, but I remember it was said of former Premier Leslie Frost, who governed in the 1950s, he could always plow a straight furrow. And that was considered (laughs) a high praise for a guy who was from Lindsay, Ontario, which was pretty rural territory back then anyway. Well, and and to this day, uh, party leaders uh, are are set on a tractor and uh, the, the competition is to see who can plow the straightest furrow. Exactly right. Okay, let's pick up here on our next issue, which is, of course, the NDP leadership. We now have a candidate, Marit Stiles, who is the education critic, or was anyway, before she threw her hat into the ring. She's the MPP for Davenport, which is a downtown Toronto riding, and she's number one, the first one into the race. She is very popular in her Davenport constituency. Uh, Four years ago when she ran for the first time, she got 60 percent of the vote. Last time, even though it was a worse election for the NDP three months ago, she still won 57 percent of the votes cast. Go ahead, JMM. Tell us some more about Marit Stiles. 
Well, as you mentioned, uh, she was the education critic uh, until uh, Friday last when uh, Peter Tabins, the NDP leader, announced that uh, he was giving that portfolio to uh, Ottawa West Nepean MPP Chandra Pasma. Tabins says that you know anybody who seeks uh, the, the leadership bid, they will have their uh, critic portfolio reassigned. That's a pretty common thing you see amongst political parties. Uh, before being an MPP, Stiles was the uh, school trustee, the, the Toronto District School Board trustee for uh, this part of Toronto. Uh, so a presence in the community, roots in the community. Uh, her launch was, was very interesting um, because, you know, a real emphasis on how, despite the fact that she lives in Toronto and she's got, you know, now at this point, a substantial uh, history in Toronto politics and emphasis on the fact that she comes from Newfoundland, that, you know, that's part of her, uh, her past as well. Um, and uh, as you would expect, very critical about uh, the current government and its uh, relationship with the school system and uh, with education workers. Can I tell you a little Marit Style story? I couldn't stop you if I wanted to. That is probably true. <laughs> Did you know, John Michael, she is the famed British singer Harry Styles' sister? Did you know that? I, I did not know that because I don't think that's true, Steve. I know. It's not true. <laughs> I'm just being a little bit mischievous there. Okay. Here is a true story, though, about Marit Styles, and that is, and I'm trying to remember how many years ago this was, probably six or seven years ago, She's a school board trustee, as you pointed out, for the Toronto District School Board, and she's starting to gain profile. And she was a guest on the agenda for a program we did on the education system in the province and in the city. And uh, after the program was over, I think a few days later, I sent her an email and I said, uh, can I take you out to lunch? Want to pick your brains on what's going on with some other educational issues, et cetera, et cetera. We went out for lunch, and during the course of our conversation, I pointed out to her that even though the polls were looking not bad for Andrea Horvath, the then leader of the provincial NDP, I said to her, you know, you represent a part of the city that is pretty true orange NDP. I know you're a school board trustee right now, but at some point you should think about running as an MPP and you never know, somewhere down the road, you could be the leader of this party. No, and, uh, you know, I think many of us watching her career before Queen's Park and at Queen's Park, you can see this coming, right? Without wishing any ill will or anything upon Andrew Horvath, it was pretty clear that 2022 was going to be, one way or the other, was going to be her last election. Uh, in theory, I suppose if they'd won, she, she might have gotten another crack at it, but it didn't seem likely to happen. And for a while now, there's been a question of, you know, who would succeed Horvath? And I don't think there's ever been a short list of potential successors uh, without Styles' name on it. Indeed. And I and I do recall when I said that to her, when I said to her, you know, Marit, you not only should think about running provincially, but at some point you got to think about being the leader as well. And she didn't dismiss it <laughs> outright right away. Well, it's, it's worth adding here, I think, that, you know, one of Styles' first jobs when she moved from Newfoundland to Toronto uh, was uh, working in the office of Gilles Bisson, uh, the uh, former uh, MPP for the New Democrats who was defeated in the last election, but longtime MPP for the Timmins area. And so, you know, she clearly has, a, you know, even when she was a school board trustee, uh, you know, she's been very tied in with the provincial New Democrats. Exactly. Now, she is the first to enter the race, but hardly the only New Democrat considering a run. Tell us who else is showing some interest. Uh, well, just on Friday, uh, Catherine Fife, the MPP for Waterloo, uh, did confirm that she is still seriously considering uh, running for the leadership. But she uh, said she was, you know, very excited to see Styles' launch and said it was a good launch, and you know, said all of the kind things that 
people who might have to be opponents say before things start getting ugly. Um, oh, really? I, I guess we're you, not watching the conservative uh, federal conservative leadership convention. <laughs> Nobody said a single nice thing about anybody in that race. The conservatives are a different species <laughs> from the NDP in okay. a lot of ways. That's, that's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think Fife and Styles would be an interesting contest because. I think in some ways they would be uh, fishing from the same pond or, or whatever metaphor you want to use. I think they would, broadly speaking, be similar uh, candidates. They are both former school trustees, for example. Uh, Fife has been uh, at the legislature longer. Uh, she's the finance critic. But broadly speaking, and I don't want to overstate things because they are different people with different histories, but you know, broadly speaking, I see them as relatively similar compared to some other names who might be on that list as well. Laura Maylindo's name uh, has been uh, mentioned. A woman of color would bring a, a very different uh, perspective. Lindo, of course, is the MPP for Kitchener Center. As notable as the people who might run, the people who are not running uh, Early on in this process, uh, Joel Harden ruled himself out of the race. I think it would be fair to say that you know Harden is the, the leftmost uh, poll of the current provincial NDP, and you know NDP leadership races always produce somebody who who is um, the the avatar of the true left in the party. And I think Harden might have been that person. He has said he is not running. He wants to you know focus on his family and that kind of thing. Um, Butila Karpoche, the uh, Parkdale High Park MPP, uh, she is not running. Uh, she, in fact, uh, endorsed Styles. Uh, I let's give our listeners a bit of a behind the scenes thing. But you know, I was discussing with our producer about, you know, oh, I, I should double check that Karpoche is in fact out of the race. And I hadn't even gotten around to sending the email when I saw her at the Styles launch. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I think that question's answered. That's a pretty good clue that she's not running if she's showing up at somebody else's. Yeah. Well, except that uh, on that point, uh, Toronto St. Paul MPP Jill Andrew uh, was at uh, the Styles launch, but stopped short of uh, calling her presence an outright endorsement. Hmm. Uh, I, I think she's uh, holding her fire to see who else gets in the race. Uh, certainly had lots of positive things to say about Styles, but didn't uh, didn't go all the way to say that she was endorsing her for uh, the NDP leadership bid. And the, the NDP MPP, Wayne Gates, has also been musing about possibly uh, throwing his hat into the ring as well. So a uh, long way to go, though. They're, they don't actually... Um I don't think they have to announce until December whether or not they're in. Right. The nominations uh, close on December 2nd, I believe, and the uh, contest itself, the vote itself, will be held in March. Now, let's talk a bit about uh, the overarching picture here, which is, in some respects, a fight for the heart of the NDP. As in, like, what does the NDP stand for these days anyway? Uh, the question that many new Democrats are asking is, do we want to represent the working class of this province or the chattering class of this province? And, you know, there are many Ontarians who think the NDP, in particular in the last election campaign, had a lot less to say about the working class these days. And as evidenced by the fact, I think that eight Ontario ridings dumped their NDP MPP in that election and elected a conservative MPP instead. The NDP, I think it's fair to say, has focused a lot more, more recently, on so-called equity-seeking groups. If you consider it a, a kind of a trade-off, an either-or, well, the trade didn't work for the NDP in the last election, as the NDP dropped almost 10 points in the total vote, and they won nine fewer seats. So, we need to win, was the major message in Marit Stiles' remarks. Do you think that signals a change in where the party intends to put the focus going forward? Right. And I just before I answer your question, I just want to, you know, drill in a, a, for a moment and, and say, you know, 
the the trade you are talking about the the in in theory you could imagine a party that says like industrial blue collar workers that were the the heart of the NDP for many many years they are a small and shrinking proportion of the overall electorate while young ethnically diverse especially communities in the 905 these are broadly speaking, the future of Ontario's electorate. And at some point, you got to make that trade, or at least you could imagine a party telling itself that that's where the future is and you got to... The math makes sense. Yeah, you skate where the puck is going, right? Right. The problem is if the trade doesn't work, if you you can't actually execute it, that's where the party gets into, uh, into trouble. And so this is the big question for... Uh, anybody who wants to to lead the NDP, I think the the dark fear that has got to be haunting the party, and you know, it's like a, a fear that I would tell people to take seriously, is what if the system is just heading back to its pre twenty eighteen equilibrium, right? What if the moment the Liberals find a compelling enough leader, Ontario's voters go back to relegating the NDP to third place again. Uh, And what does the leader of the NDP need to do to try and stop that from happening? The other question for Stiles in particular is, what does the party think about being led from Toronto? I think the Liberals are going to face this question very intensely after being led first by Kathleen Wynne and then by Stephen Del Duca, you know, a 905 candidate. I think styles it's like it's not just the toronto area it's downtown toronto right um and i think styles is going to have to convince uh, some ndp voters that it's not just uh, a, a toronto takeover of the party let me state the obvious bob ray was from toronto kathleen Wynne was from toronto doug ford's from toronto yeah. you know it's not completely unheard of that somebody representing a toronto riding would be one of the premiers of this province there used to be conventional wisdom that you actually couldn't win with a leader who was from Toronto. And there, you know, John Robarts was from London. Bill Davis was from Brampton. This is at a time when Brampton was not part of the greater Toronto area. It was considered a long way away. Leslie Frost was from Lindsay. Anyway, you can go keep going further back. But um, that paradigm seems to have shifted. You can be from Toronto and win now. Okay, moving on to the next issue, the Financial Accountability Office, which, of course, is the independent, nonpartisan agency that studies government expenditures. It has released its report on climate change impacts on publicly owned transportation in Ontario. This one's got McGrath's name written all over it. Why don't you give us the 411 on this? The FAO's report is on, as we say, the climate change impacts of uh, on publicly owned infrastructure for transportation. So this is roads, bridges, uh, rails for, you know, go trains and streetcars, that kind of thing. And Ontario owns a lot of this stuff. The FAO's report estimates that there will be $2.2 billion more per year uh, in terms of infrastructure costs on average uh, in what they call the medium emissions scenario. This is the more optimistic scenario where we get serious about cutting down climate change pollution. Uh, In the higher emissions scenario, uh, it would be $4.2 billion. We are talking about climate-related impacts costing us an additional $171 billion in the medium emissions scenario or as much as $322 billion in the high emissions scenario. My goodness. Okay. The um, interim leader of the NDP is Peter Tabbins from Toronto. Toronto Danforth has a background in Greenpeace, and he had this to say about all of that. Ontarians are already paying the price for the climate crisis, including the costs of cleaning up after flooding and tornadoes and fixing damaged properties. The FAO's new report shows that the impacts of the climate crisis will pile on billions 
to the province's public transportation infrastructure costs, and even more if we don't invest in adapting our infrastructure to make it climate resilient. Now, what did the report go on to say about the way in which we can adapt to climate change and how would that affect those costs? The report really outlines some differences between the, let's call it the do-nothing scenario, where uh, emissions continue to go up and we really don't, um, we don't try to harden our infrastructure against climate change uh, versus what uh, they call a reactive or a proactive uh, strategy for uh, adapting our infrastructure. And so there are ways to make roads and trains and and these things more resilient to uh, climate impacts. But the question here is, when do you do that? In a reactive scenario, you're basically waiting for the infrastructure to get to the end of its lifespan, and then you're replacing it with something better. Uh, The FAO's report tries, I think, to make a case for doing things a bit more proactively, maybe replacing things before they get uh, very old. Um, and, And they basically argue that while it would cost very minimally more to be proactive. You know, it would cost less overall and it would be less risky. And and this is something that I wrote about uh, for the TVO.org piece, so I'm not going to belabor this point, just to say that if you look at their projections, we could either harden 100% of our transportation infrastructure by 2050, or we could still be Uh, still have huge amounts of our infrastructure unprotected well into the 2060s and 70s. And that difference is basically, you know, extra decades of vulnerability. And the FAO doesn't really know how to cost the risks there. They, you know, they're a small shop. They don't have, you know, thousands of economists clacking away at typewriters. Um, But you probably can't say that the vulnerability or the risk there is zero. I got to hand it to them. You know, they do some absolutely fascinating work there. That, yeah. we ha- that we did not have done before they were created, I think, as part of a compromise between the Liberals and NDP when Kathleen Wynne was the premier. Right. I mean, this, the, the origin story of the FAO is, is kind of funny in the sense that, you know, th- we already had the federal parliamentary budget officer. And in 2013, as a condition of uh, supporting the liberal budget, the NDP demanded the creation of the – well, they had two two conditions, create the FAO and do something about auto insurance rates. And the liberal government agreed to the creation of the FAO and promised to do something about auto insurance rates. And the auto insurance thing never really happened. (laughs) Uh, But the FAO has been this enduringly useful uh, office that, that, uh, and, you know, I will give some personal credit to Peter Weltman here because I think, you know, he's been there for a few years now and has has done some really interesting stuff. Um, And and he's... He's the head of it. uh, Yes, he's the head of it. Now, there's a little fly in the ointment here in as much as you did say the province owns a lot of stuff, but the municipalities actually have significant responsibilities here. So take us through that. Right. So the majority of the the very large majority of the infrastructure that we are talking about here is municipally owned. It is not provincially owned. 67%-ish is, is municipally owned. And of that, the majority is roads. Um, roads are, I think, the poster child for uh, infrastructure that's run by the municipalities. And, and you can also see how they would be vulnerable to extreme weather, right? I, gosh, I mean, over the summer in the UK, we saw some runways in London, like actually had to be closed because the asphalt was boiling, right? I mean, hopefully we won't see that in Ontario, but that's the kind of thing that roads are vulnerable to. How much the climate change uh, of the future is going to cost us? These are big numbers we've been talking about. And the thing I would really 
want our listeners to take home is that all of this is, by definition, an underestimate. It cannot count the full risks of climate change, even just to publicly owned infrastructure. Uh, the, the FAO is also quite clear that they can't really calculate the impacts on private uh, buildings, right? Like the same storms that make a bridge buckle are probably also going to flood people's basements. Uh, they, they haven't calculated that. And they haven't calculated like what happens when a storm knocks out a major transportation link in the province and supply chains get snarled and people panic buy food. And it, it, like all of this stuff creates chaos that they just have no ability to model. But we know the risk of it is not zero. I'm no expert in mill rates, but I'm willing to bet that if two-thirds of this infrastructure that you're talking about is owned by municipalities, there is not nearly enough capacity on the property tax base. Well, you know, <laughs> you and I have had experience of trying to get Peter Weltman to answer questions that he does not want to. And one of the questions I asked him was, is inaction on climate policy a form of downloading costs to municipalities? Right. The province doesn't do enough to solve climate change. And it is the position of this government in multiple courts uh, that the provinces are the ones best suited to address climate change pollution because, of course, they didn't want uh, federal policy to to uh, bigfoot them. So the province is not doing uh, enough to stop uh, climate pollution. Um, but they are not going to be the ones bearing the biggest cost. If you read these FAO reports, right, the biggest costs are going to be borne by municipalities that own most of the infrastructure. And um, as I say, uh, uh, Mr. Weltman did not want to uh, answer that question directly, <laughs> but uh, I think it, it's one way to look at the problem. Next issue. On the topic of where to best allocate money, numbers were published by the Public Accounts Ontario last Friday on how the government has been operating on a surplus in the past fiscal year. That's 2021-22. Okay, let's break this down. And first of all, let's make a distinction here between the Financial Accountability Office, which we have just been discussing, and Public Accounts Ontario, which also looks at the numbers, but in a different way. Go ahead. Take us through that. Right. So this is part of the uh, fiscal cycle of uh, governments in Canada. Uh, it is really just the sexiest topic uh, to discuss in a podcast. Here. <laughs> the fiscal cycle is just uh, something the government has to do every single year. And uh, the public accounts are in some ways the the last step. Uh, a, a fiscal year starts with publishing a budget. Uh, that's where the government is basically telling people this is how much we intend to spend. Then you go through estimates and there's a whole thing. But public accounts is that last step in the cycle where they say, hey, this is how much we spent this year. And, and it's a partisan process, unlike the FAO. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, it's run directly out of the Ministry of Finance. So it is, it, you know, the, the government, uh, you know, really controls those numbers. Uh, though I will say that y there is at least some independence from uh, the government in the sense that the public accounts are audited by the Auditor General, yes. who uh, has not always in uh, recent years, but did sign off on the public accounts uh, this year. And uh, that's now five years in a row, which the Tories are quite happy to crow about. Uh, the news about public accounts uh, this year, though, was that, uh, surprisingly, uh, the government uh, reported a surplus of $2 billion uh, in the public accounts. That means that at the end of the fiscal year, 2021-22, uh, they received in revenue $2.1 billion more than they spent. Uh, how does that happen given all of the financial chaos of uh, COVID-19 uh, through uh, last year? Well, they underspent 
on education and social services primarily uh, relative to what they were expecting to spend on. They spent $800 million less on social services, $400 million less in education. Now, when you say they underspent, what you mean is they budgeted X, but they actually spent X minus Eight hundred million, or X minus four hundred million. Yeah, exactly. So it's worth reminding people what uh, FAO Peter Weltman uh, told us on the podcast back in August that when a government budgets a certain amount of money, that's a maximum they can spend up to that amount of money. But cautious governments do not go right up to the red line, you know, on every single uh, item in their budget because obviously it's well, it's illegal for them to spend more than that. Now that is the overall sort of top line number. And so I think the underspending still matters, but it's because you're looking at where the underspending happened. And, and as we say, you know, in this instance, it looks like they spent less than intended on uh, social services and education. At the same time, this government, and, and we'll talk about this a bit, a bit more later on, but you know, this government is also trying to convince voters, and, and I would say primarily parents, uh, that it is uh, supporting schools uh, as we come out of COVID nineteen, and you know, they want to keep the schools open. They uh, talk about the extensive reinvestments in uh, public schools and things like air filters in every classroom, and money for tutoring. The the so called plan to catch up, which I don't know if you've been seeing ads for this, but like they really are spending money on advertising on this this uh, quote-unquote plan to catch up. So they, they are trying to emphasize how much money they are spending, even though, as the public accounts show, they're actually coming in short of what they uh, said they were going to spend. Well, here's the political reality of that, and that is if you promise to spend, let's pluck a number out of thin air, a billion dollars on something, and then you only spend $700 million, you certainly leave yourself open to the accusation by the opposition that you are starving the system of the needed funds required to fulfill said promises in the past. Uh, why don't you fill us in more on how the opposition's reacted to this? Well, exactly as you say, the opposition parties uh, accused the government of uh, sitting on money that it could have been spending uh, at a time when you know, hospital ERs have been closed because of uh, a lack of doctors and nurses and, uh, you know, we're sending students back to school, that kind of thing. Uh, the NDP and Greens both accused uh, the government in uh, press releases of uh, basically exacerbating the, the various problems that the, uh, the province faces right now. Now, for its part, the government also announced that they were increasing funding for, for example, tutoring aids, up to 140 million to 340 million for that. This is direct cash to parents to help make up for learning loss during the pandemic, right? Have we got that right? Uh, yes, the government announced this uh, this plan to to catch up a few months back now, and uh, we still don't have a ton of details about like how parents are actually going to be able to access this money. That is apparently uh, coming soon, but we don't have it yet. But you know, it's it's pretty substantial uh, increase, not not quite uh, doubling it. But I think they are, let's say, trying to stay on the right side of parents. <laughs> let's stay with education for this next issue, and that is the third largest education union will be the first of Ontario's education unions to call a strike vote, which would empower the bargaining committee to call a strike next month. The voting for this strike or whether it should happen, started last Friday. It will continue through October 2nd. The union is basically, what do we call this? It's the not the teachers union. This is the 55,000 education support staff, their custodians, their administration, support staff like early childhood educators who work in kindergarten classrooms, educational assistants, that kind of thing. They work in all the boards, the public board, the Catholic board, the French board, 
Why don't you give us some more of the lay of the land on this one? So the average wage of a uh, member of uh, this union, if you go by, these are numbers provided by OPSU, uh, is about $18.75 an hour. OPSU says that education workers earn an average of $39,000 a year. That calculation is based on a 40-hour work week. Uh, 84%, they say, earn less than $50,000 per year. uh, And more than half are required to work at least one additional job to make ends meet. So Unsurprisingly, they have uh, some demands from the government. They would like to see the wages increase by $3.25 an hour. They want to see uh, casual workers paid the same amount as permanent employees. Uh, And they want uh, funding to create new jobs and to enhance services in schools. Now, as these proceedings continue, the education minister, Stephen Lecce, did manage to capture some attention for a column he wrote in the Toronto Sun on the so-called right to learn. And that has certainly caused some anxiety in some union circles. And here's the quote in particular. Minister Lecce says, our commitment is clear. We will stand up for your child's right to learn from September right to June. Nothing is more important. And this expression, right to learn, John Michael, is, well, you know, it's a Rorschach test. A lot of people interpreting it the way some very innocently and some say it's it's a real shot across the bow. Well, certainly, I think one interpretation is that the government is is all but saying that if the teachers try to walk off the job, they will be legislated back to work. And, uh, you know, I think if that's your interpretation... That's how I'm interpreting it. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, this government obviously wants to forestall any kind of labor disruption this year uh, that would see kids out of class again uh, after uh, multiple years were disrupted because of COVID. And I think, you know, let's just focus on that for one second, right? Like the school year was disrupted and that wasn't the fault of teachers unions. That That's on the government. Uh, we can argue about the, the, the necessity of it because of COVID. I'm not that angry about school closures anymore, but I, you know, (laughs) it was their call. Yeah, it was their call. Right. Um, You know, so this is, I think, part of the the battle for, let's call it the hearts and minds of of parents. Um, You know, parents vote, school kids don't. And as much as we want to talk about education, you know, focused on the students, on school kids, as far as the politics are concerned, this is about the government and parents. And the government is trying to position itself uh, on the side of uh, the the parents and uh, keeping kids in class, um, and they are trying to position teachers uh, as self interested. Um, this is not unheard of. This is not even really novel. <laughs> um, I, I, we've seen Ontario governments do it before. We watched uh, liberals do it uh, when they were in power. Though I think I would say you know I think the last time we saw it happen was really under Dalton McGuinty. I think Kathleen Wynne made a bit more peace there. Um, Normally, I would say that, you know, the Tories could say what they like, but they have a hard time convincing the sort of median Ontario voter that, uh, you know, they're really trying their hardest to make peace with the teachers. There's a long history about this stuff. But uh, I don't know, maybe things got scrambled uh, after COVID. Well, it's interesting that you said when you heard the expression right to learn, you inferred, does that mean back to work legislation after they go out? And I inferred something different. I inferred are they going to take away the right to strike in the first place? The fact of the matter is teachers in the past didn't have the right to strike until Premier Bill Davis, there is our obligatory (laughs) Davis mention for this podcast, Bill Davis gave them the right to strike in 1975. Up until then, if you couldn't come to an agreement with teachers, teachers resigned en masse. Uh, 
I don't know. You hearing anything about about taking away the right to strike in the first place? Well, I mean, you know, the the complication that Bill Davis did not have to deal with, and or, or that the Ontario government didn't have to deal with prior to 1975, is that we now have the Charter, and the Supreme Court has interpreted uh, the Charter as guaranteeing some measure of collective bargaining rights. And that will be something that I'm sure will get legislated or rather will get uh, uh, litigated. The government could introduce legislation uh, preempting any kind of strike and, uh, you know, simply uh, stopping uh, a walkout before it could even happen. they would then get sued and this would then start working its way through the courts and it would be years before it got resolved one way or the other. Um, But they could do it. From the government's perspective, uh, the only reason to wait for the strike to happen would be if you think that for purely sort of communications uh, reasons, uh, if you thought that it would look too sort of rash to to jump the gun, to, to legislate away their right to strike uh, from the beginning. Maybe they're not worried about that. Hmm. Well, the secret to this dispute is similar to the secret to comedy. And the answer to that is timing. <laughs> if the unions do try for a strike, you generally want to do it before it's too late in the school year because a strike in June, you know, obviously it's the end of the school year already, doesn't cause the government much of a headache at that point. So tell us about the calendar. So that's one calendar issue. Another calendar-related issue is going to be the length of the contracts that they can get with uh, both uh, this union and the teachers' unions. Uh, You know, if they have to renegotiate uh, in three years' time and that puts uh, teachers in a potential strike position in the six months before an election, that's going to be incredibly dicey and, uh, you know, it would not surprise me if around the bargaining table they were really, really hoping to get, you know, another four or, you know, maybe they get really lucky and get a five-year contract. But, you know, the teachers' unions also are no dummies. And, you know, if the government wants a longer ca- contract, maybe the teachers' unions will be asking for more money on the back end. You know, you never know how these things go. Let's do one more issue, and that is the Angus Reid organization does regular polling of how popular the 10 premiers in Canada are. Doug Ford is only the sixth most popular premier in Canada right now with 41% support. That's basically where he was on Election Day, incidentally, three months ago. The most popular premier in Canada, Scott Moe of Saskatchewan with a 57% approval rating. The least popular premier, right next door. Heather Stephenson of Manitoba, only 22% popularity. She's been the premier there for less than a year. And if the job there was to rebrand the PC government of Manitoba, well, it's not going too well. How do you read Premier Ford's 41% approval rating? As you say, this is about what he got on election day. So I saw some headlines suggesting that his, his popularity was slipping. I think it's probably reading too much in to say that his popularity is slipping. But I, I do think it's notable that there doesn't seem to be any kind of honeymoon period after the election. People have formed their opinions about Doug Ford and they are currently uh, not changing. He might be suffering a little bit from the focus on uh, health care and long-term care issues. Uh, last month especially, we talked a lot about Bill 7 and about uh, this was the legislation that lets the government move people out of hospitals into long-term care homes that are not of their choosing. Those kinds of things are not great issues for the government, quite frankly. And stuff like this might be hurting them in the polls. But um, 
I don't see uh, a ton of change here. That might change if things with the education unions uh, start to go south in a really bad way, uh, if things get really acrimonious, if, if there is a strike or a lockout or, or the government has to legislate things back to work. Any of that really poses a much larger risk for the government. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. Here now, my quote of the week, and we're going to go back to last week and the memorial service to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Here's Canada's 18th Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney, doing what, frankly, he does better than any other Canadian alive today, offering a eulogy to a world-famous public servant. Today, our system might appear anachronistic to some. I understand that. But to others who constitute, in my judgment, the overwhelming majority of Canadians, the role of the monarchy, and in particular, the irreplaceable role played by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for 70 years was absolutely indispensable in our country's hugely impressive achievements and contributions to peace and prosperity and stability at home and around the world. He eulogized Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and now Queen Elizabeth II. Brian Mulroney, Canada's 18th Prime Minister. And my quote of the week comes from NDP finance critic and potential leadership aspirant, uh, Catherine Fife. Uh, here she is uh, reacting to the news of the government's uh, $2 billion surprise surplus. Well, I think that what we would say is that they currently they're not even meeting um, the inflationary needs. They are not meeting the unprecedented times and the pain that people are feeling in the province. Uh, so when you dramatically underspend last year and then you dramatically underspend this year, uh, they're they're creating their own goalposts is what we would say. And uh, meanwhile, what we're hearing, and I'm sure PC other PC MPPs from across the province are also hearing, that people are desperate for mental health supports. They're desperate for, you know, they're waiting on a wait list to, for surgery. I mean, this is, budgets are about choices. And this government can afford to address the needs of Ontarians, and they are not doing so. That's NDP MPP Catherine Fife speaking at Queen's Park on Friday. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, edited by Larry Curry. Our managing editor is Shahayar Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Remember people, COVID isn't over yet, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.